Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. As we celebrate the beginning of a new year, I thought it would be fitting to start out this year by remembering a quote from the 19th century American novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. He wrote, time flies over us, but it leaves its shadow behind. Certainly, time has flown over the last year, hasn't it? For many of us, we've we've built a lot of memories, some great, some good, some not so good. But time also leaves its shadow behind. And it's that shadow that causes us to reflect on days like today, the beginning of a new year, where we look back over the past year and we think about everything that we did, some good things and some things that maybe we wish we would have done better. That shadow also causes us to lean into the next year, to look ahead for ways that we can improve and become the best versions of ourselves. It's, it's because of that shadow that many of us actually set New Year's resolutions or goals for the next year. I, I'm sure over the years you all have set plenty of New Year's resolutions. I know that I have. As an example, in 2018, I decided that I was going to get back into running like I did when I was in my 20s. And for the first month, I actually did pretty well. I set some good rhythms where I, I woke up at 5 in the morning and ran a few times a week. Things were going great until one morning I slept in. Well, that, the rest of that week I did pretty well. The next week I did well. And then I missed another morning. And then another one, and you can guess what happened next. I enjoyed sleeping at five in the morning more than I enjoyed running. There was a time that I decided I wanted to teach myself how to play the piano. I was genuinely excited about this goal. So I took our keyboard, I set it up in a space that I knew I wouldn't interrupt anyone when I was practicing. I went out to Barnes & Noble and I bought one of those uh, Piano for Dummies books and set it right next to the keyboard so that I I would be able to play and play well. And then the new year came, and the next day, and then a couple of weeks and a couple of months, and nothing happened. The piano just sat there until one day I, I was cleaning, and and I noticed that it was sitting there in that spot that I set it up in. I felt so bad that I actually put it in a closet. (laughs) Come to think of it, as I'm sharing this with you, I think it's still in that closet collecting dust today. Another year, I decided I would learn how to speak Spanish. After all, I took a few classes when I was in high school, and so I figured it couldn't be that bad to get back into speaking Spanish. So, in order to prep myself for that, I turned on the Spanish TV station Telemundo, watched about 30 minutes of one episode just to see how many words I would be able to pick up. I can tell you with confidence I turned the TV off and I just scratched that goal off my list. (laughs) Looking through the treasure trove of the internet, I found that I'm not alone in failing my goals. And so looking on Twitter, a Twitter user named Adeline says this, officially broke my New Year's resolutions, locked my keys in the car this morning. Has anyone else ever done that? That is a hard way to start your day. 
Another Twitter user named John says this, already broke my New Year's resolutions to not do any plumbing this year. I, I don't think I want to know what that one was about. And there was an anonymous Twitter user who says this, just failed my New Year's resolutions to stop hanging out with people who ask me about my New Year's resolutions. Well, in 2017, there was a study that was conducted by the Society for Personal and Social Psychology to determine how many people actually accomplished the goals that they set for themselves in any given year. And they found that a whopping 9% of us who set New Year's resolutions actually accomplished them and carried them through to the end of the year. That means that 91% of us fail. 91% of us don't accomplish the goals that we set for ourselves. And many of us don't even make it to January 19th. We don't even make it a full three weeks. The reasons why people don't succeed are probably as numerous as the amount of goals that we set for ourselves each year as a whole. And so as I was praying for this morning, I was asking God to give me some direction for where He wanted me to share with you in ways that we might be able to have hope looking into 2023. I felt like it was appropriate to do something different. Instead of looking for ways that I could inspire you to, to make some great goals for this next year, I believe God wants us to look to Him and what He says about His character for this next year. After all, the Bible says in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That actually means that Jesus is the same whether I pick up running or I sleep in whether I learn to play the piano or I don't, whether I speak Spanish or you or I accomplish any of the goals that we set for ourselves for the upcoming year. Jesus is the same day after day, year after year. That also means that the promises that God has for us in His Word are also constant. I think Dwight Moody said it best when he said, God never made a promise that wasn't too good to be true. Let me say that again. God never made a promise in His Word that wasn't too good to be true. And so, keeping that in mind and using Hebrews 13.8 as our overarching verse for the day, I want to look at several promises God makes from His Word, several resolutions about who God is for us, about His strength, His character, what His Word says. After all, it's when we lean into that, or rather when we lean into Him, that we can find a greater hope for our upcoming year and a greater ability to change ourselves as we lean into Him instead of lean into ourselves. Promise number one is this. God promises His presence. Throughout the Bible, we see that God promises His presence with people. In Genesis, we see God promising to be with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In Exodus, we see God promising to walk with Moses as he leads the people of Israel out of bondage from slavery. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God says to Joshua, Fear not, I will be with you. And then Jesus, his final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven in the Great Commission for the 12 that were there along with the, the, another crowd of about 300 people, he said, I will never leave you, or forsake you. 
So why is the Bible so full of this reminder from Scripture that God will be with us? I think it's fairly simple because we need that reminder. Our society has an epidemic of loneliness right now. And the holidays really only seem to exacerbate that reality. Whether we've lost loved ones in the past year or, or simply we scroll through the social media feeds and we see this idyllic version of a family that our lives, for whatever reason, doesn't quite measure up to. 59% of Americans feel alone. And do you know where Oklahoma ranks in that statistic? According to the 2020 census, Oklahoma is the 10th most loneliest state in the United States of America. People are so lonely that they're looking for a connection with other people any way they can find it, but they feel like they haven't found home, like they don't have family, like there, are people, there aren't people around them that they can lean into. Perhaps you've come today. If you feel that way, if you feel alone, I want to remind you of a promise from God's Word that you are not alone, that God wants to be with you. After all, we have a creator who loves us, a God who made us, a father who went to great lengths to demonstrate his love for us and make sure that we could have a relationship with him because of the work Jesus did through the cross and a son that promises he will never leave us or forsake us. And we see that promise evident even in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Matter of fact, if you're looking for a place to begin reading Scripture this year to start off here, you're right. I would encourage you to start in the book of Genesis. After all, Genesis itself, it means beginning. And so it's a great way for you to begin your year by looking at who God is, how God created us as people, and how God intends to walk with us through the highs and lows of life. But as we look at the first two chapters, there's one theme in particular that rises to the surface that I want to explore this morning. In Genesis 1, the Bible says that God speaks, and because of His words, things come into existence. God speaks, and light and darkness form and separate from each other. God speaks, and water and land form and, and are distinct things. It's because of God's words that, that plants sprout up from the ground and start existing and fish start swimming in the sea and animals and birds start flying in the air. Some people look at that and say because God spoke, he didn't dive into creation, that he keeps himself at arm's length, that he's aloof or distant. But that's not the picture that God has for us in the Bible. See, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God speaking to himself, said, let us create mankind in our image and likeness. And so God created them, male and female, in his image and his likeness, modeled after the Trinity, a God that exists as relationship within himself. And so we were created for a relationship with God and with other people. But then Genesis 2.7 goes a little bit deeper. It says that God stepped out of heaven formed man out of the dust of the ground. And that Hebrew word for formed, it's the word, it's the word vayitzer. It, it's the same image that's used in the Old Testament of a potter who takes a lump of mud or a lump of clay and then starts tenderly, intentionally, methodically molding and crafting and shaping that, that simple lump 
into a beautiful masterpiece. See, that's the way God designed you and me. God stepped into creation and formed man out of the dust of the ground, and God stepped into creation and took a rib from man to form woman. God wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty as he got into creation then, and he's not, to get, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty today as he steps into your life and my life in, in the middle of the brokenness that we all experience. And God leans in to you and to me, and he whispers, I want to be with you. About 100 years ago in, in Dusseldorf, Germany, there was a woman that the villagers there referred to as Old Anna. Old Anna worked in, the, in the, the children's ward of a hospital specifically for babies. Doctors and nurses would do everything they could to take care of babies, but when the medicine wasn't enough, they simply handed the babies over to Old Anna. And then Old Anna, she would take those babies. She would hold them in her arms. She would rock them back and forth, gently singing sweet lullabies over them or whispering truths to them that they had what it took. She would gently caress their faces. And sure enough, one by one, because of the love that she gave them, they would come back to health in a way that medicine alone couldn't do. She essentially gave them tender, loving care. And actually, that phrase that we use today so frequently comes because of the work that old Anna did there in Dusseldorf, Germany. Maybe you're here today and you feel alone. Maybe you don't feel like you have a family or, or anyone that you can lean on or lean into. Do you need to be reminded of the truth from God's word that God wants to provide tender, loving care for you? That God has a family for you and God promises his presence for your life for this year. Number two, the second promise is this. God promises his provision Many of you know I grew up in the deserts of uh, southern Arizona in the Sonoran Desert. This time of year in the winter, the Sonoran Desert is, is beautiful. It is uh, a balmy 70 degrees most days. It's sunny 330 days out of the year. And so especially this time of year, if you go traveling, it's a great place to do a lot of things outdoors. Go hiking, go golfing. But summers, they can be quite a bear. Temperatures in the summer can extend for even 150 days at a time, over 100 degrees. 50 of those days, even above 110 degrees. It's not the same kind of heat that you and I experience here in Oklahoma. It's a dry heat. That means it's a deceptive heat. Because while here, you can feel the heat. You know it's wearing on you. Out there, you don't know you're thirsty until it's too late. There's news reports every year of people who travel to Phoenix in the summer and they decide that they're going to go hiking or go golfing or go biking in the middle of the, the heat in the summer and they don't realize that the sun is depleting energy from them until they suffer from heat stroke or worse. See, they're, they're thirsty and they don't even know it. I believe many of us, as we've come here today, our souls are thirsty, and we're not even aware of it, just like those people in Arizona. The culture has lulled us into believing that because we have enough stuff, a nice car, a good house, maybe a boat to go fishing with, or whatever else, 
If we have enough of those things, then we're in good shape. But God never promised to meet our greeds. Actually, Paul writes in Philippians 4.19 that God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God never wanted us to depend on all of the things that we accumulate. Instead, he wants us to depend on him. And he promises that he will give us just enough for one day. Enough energy for one day, enough strength to make it through one day. David, the shepherd boy turned king of Israel, he also knew what it meant to be thirsty. He was a sheep herder and and traveled throughout the Judean hillside to take care of his sheep. While he was tending sheep, he actually wrote many psalms, many poems. We have them recorded as the psalms in our Bibles. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 23. We're going to read from that this morning. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. Psalm 23 is probably one of David's most popular psalms. You'll probably recognize it by the first few lines. David writes this, The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Now when I read that passage, the image that pops in my mind perhaps is the same image that you think about when when you read that passage. It's not all that different from the the green country that we have here around Tulsa, Oklahoma. I picture rolling green hills like those in Sand Springs or Catoosa. I I picture this this hill with lush green grass that you could have a picnic set up in because the grass is so soft. And the hill has, has just this beautiful grass rolling all the way down it so that, just like children do, we could roll down that hill and enjoy it. There's a stream that's trickling nearby, at least I see in my mind, and you can hear the water flowing freely. Maybe even there's a pond nearby. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that picture. That's a far cry from the image that David had as he wrote that psalm. See, David's, where David lived, was very similar to where I grew up in, in the Sonoran Desert. The Judean hillside is actually a hot, arid desert. And so David, as he took sheep and his other shepherds took sheep, there were no green pastures where sheep could graze for a month at a time and have their fill and eat all kinds of food in one setting. Instead, shepherds had to take their sheep and go from hillside to hillside, often traveling miles at a time, just to find enough food for their sheep for one day. They would travel from tuft to tuft. And what I mean by that is they would travel from from one hillside where they found a patch of grass that was maybe buried underneath a bush or underneath a tree to another tuft that was in another hillside that was maybe in a crevice where water had managed to pool together and form. David certainly knew what it was to be thirsty in that desert. David also knew God's provision day by day, moment by moment, which sounds a lot actually like the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. In that time in Israel's history, God provided manna that would fall from the sky and he would provide food for them so they could live each day. God didn't give them enough food to last a month or a year. 
he only gave them enough food for one single day so that they could learn to trust him and trust his provision instead of trusting themselves and instead of trusting in the provision itself. David learned about that trust and leaned into that trust. And so I actually want to go back and read that psalm again, looking at that and thinking through that lens. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you need to be reminded today that God promises to provide for you? Maybe he won't give you enough energy or enough food for an entire lifetime, but he promises he will give you enough for today. Promise number three, God promises his transformation. God promises us transformation. Transformation is an interesting word. It's actually, it comes from the Greek word metamorpho. It's the word that we get metamorphosis from in English. In the New Testament, when New Testament writers use that word, they typically use that word both to describe transformation and also to describe agent of transformation, the, the, the person, really God, through which transformation takes shape. It's, it's like this. When we describe the act of water turning into ice, it can only do so with the presence of cold. Or for that ice to turn back into liquid or turn into gas, it can only do so with the presence of heat. So for us, the way God designed us, we can't transform ourselves. We can only transform ourselves by the power of God at work in our lives. God is the one that acts on our behalf. But so many times we feel like we are the, the captains of our own fate, the masters of our own destiny. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Certainly, that is the image that one of our founding fathers, Ben Franklin, thought about. Ben, Benjamin Franklin, when he was a teenager, he actually created a list of resolutions. Twelve resolutions that he thought would help him improve his character. And so as he created this list of shoulds and oughts, he also tracked how well he did them. And this list included things like he should always be polite. He should never say anything vulgar. He shouldn't eat or drink too much. He should not waste his money. He shouldn't waste anything, especially time. And as he tracked how well he did each thing at the end of each day, he would sit and he would tally up which ones he did well in and which ones he didn't do well in. And he put a black mark by each one that he didn't do well in. Well, he writes in his autobiography much later in his life that he failed so miserably at accomplishing any of those things, at transforming himself, that he put black mark on top of black mark on top of black mark, so much so, actually, that he'd worn holes through in parts of that journal. Benjamin Franklin learned something that I believe you and I are in the process of learning ourselves. And that's this, that transformation rarely happens under our own power. It can only happen by the power and the presence of God and His Spirit at work in our lives. Paul actually writes about that in Titus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. As Paul was writing to Titus, 
Paul was writing to a young man that he had led to faith, a young man that he mentored, and a young man that he then sent out to become the pastor of the church in Crete. And as he writes this letter, he gives a lot of advice on how to lead that church well. Among that, those pieces of advice, he included a description of how transformation comes about. So he writes this in, in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Did you notice who was the agent of transformation or what vehicle was used to bring about transformation? God and God's grace, Paul writes. It's God's grace that teaches us to, it's God's grace that brings salvation to us, but it's also God's grace that teaches us how to live. Paul says it this way, that it's because of what Jesus did through the cross in dying on the cross to take the place of the sin that we all carry in our lives, that brokenness, that then he could even offer grace to us. And as we accept that grace, we receive forgiveness from our sins. We experience salvation. But not only that, God's presence also teaches us through his grace how we can live and act to say yes to God and no to sin. Certainly, it's a partnership, but it's one where God's already done the heavy lifting on our behalf. All we have to do is continue to seek God and lean into him and look to him and he will provide for us transformation for our souls. Number four, God promises equipping. Carpenters, plumbers, teachers, doctors, they're all familiar with, with tools that they need to use for their professions. Not only that, they also go through a period of equipping where they go to school and learn how to use those tools to effectively make a difference in the lives of other people. In the same way, God wants to equip us with tools and give us an education so we can use those tools to be effective. And so as we look forward to this next year, what equipping do you think you need from God? Or what tools do you think God wants to give you so that you can be successful? God certainly does want us to be successful looking into this next year. Now, his version of success may not always be our picture of success. At least for me, when I think of success, I think about promotions, raises, I'm getting praised because I'm doing things well. But that isn't what God defines success as. God defines success as other people coming to know him, as his kingdom expanding. It's about him and his glory and his purposes. It's not about us. Certainly God wants to use you and God wants to use me. And he wants to equip us with resources so that we can point people to know and experience the same love and the same hope that we've come to know and experience for those who have trusted in Jesus. Rick Warren wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Purpose Driven Life. That book, while, while it is a book today, it didn't start out that way. It started as a series of sermons that he preached at his church in Southern California, Saddleback Church. 
the first chapter of that book and the first sermon, coincidentally, was titled, It's All About God. How fitting is that? The the truth is, it is all about God and His vision and His focus for our lives. And when we make our lives about His priorities instead of our own, we find incredible peace and incredible success for our lives. That first line that he writes in the first chapter, he says, it's not about you. The truth is, is that when we align ourselves with God's priorities, with God's focus, with God's plan, we find a greater sense of purpose and fulfillment for our lives than we could with anything else. It's just like when we align our cars. When the, when the alignment is correct, our cars will move straight ahead. But when the alignment is off, often it will veer to the right or the left, and it ends up messing up some parts of the car in the process of doing so. The Bible puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, it's about God's glory. And He wants to equip us with tools and resources so that we can point more people to know and experience that glory or know and experience the hope that we've come to know and experience that someday, because of what Jesus did through the cross, we get to experience God for eternity. He wants other people to know that same hope which actually brings us to our fifth promise. God promises for us eternity. Don Piper, a pastor and author, he wrote a book a few years ago called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And in that book, he talks about how one day he was heading home from a pastor's conference. And as he was driving on the road, he drove across a bridge heading towards his home When a prisoner who had escaped from jail stole a truck, veered into the lane he was driving in on that bridge, collided with his car, causing it to flip over and over again. It actually caused the roof to collapse on top of him. By the time emergency medical professionals arrived on the scene, they determined that the accident was so horrific that he had died the moment that that truck struck his car. It took the jaws of life to pull his body out of the car. And so they laid him down to try and see if there was anybody else they could help out. And as someone else was inconvenienced by that because he was coming down the same road, he felt compelled by God to get out of his car and start praying. For 90 minutes, this individual prayed. After 90 minutes, he started singing, What a friend we have in Jesus. The moment he he started singing that song, Don woke up, and he started singing that song too. And then Don goes on in his book to describe how for those 90 minutes, he tasted eternity. He got to experience firsthand the sights and smells and sounds of what heaven is like. He met people who had gone on before him, relatives of his. He got to meet Jesus and walk with him face to face. He felt more accepted and more at home than he had at any point previously in his entire life. 
And then when he was woken up, when God sent him back to earth, he found himself depressed. Because for the first time, he'd felt like he was at home and accepted and loved. And then he was in a world full of suffering and pain. It took him a few months. But he eventually came to realize that God had sent him back so that more people could know the same hope that he had got to experience firsthand, that God has designed us for eternity. So many of us, when we think about heaven, we, we, we've bought into this lie that heaven is somehow this, this magical fairy place where it's a giant sing-along service. John Eldridge talks about that in one of his books where we often think that it's a never-ending church service where we're just singing worship songs over and over and over again. That's part of what heaven is, but that's not all of it. Revelations 21.4 says heaven is a place where there's no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering, no more sorrow. It's a place where we're loved and accepted, where we feel at home. There's no more loneliness, no more isolation. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of place that I want to be at. God promises us His presence, His provision, His transformation, His equipping, and His eternity. But He doesn't just offer those to us carte blanche. There's one catch. There's one thing that He wants us to do in order to experience those. He puts it, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for every one of God's promises is yes in him, in Jesus. Jesus is the gatekeeper. He is the pathway through which we get to experience those blessings, those promises that God has for us for this next year and for every year. The Bible actually puts it this way, that God created the world as a good place. God created us as good people to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship with other people, to be fulfilled in and through those relationships. But then sin entered the world, and because of sin, brokenness is all around us. We all experience that. And that sin, that brokenness, it created a barrier between us and God, forever isolating us and separating us between God and us and between us and other people. But thanks be to God, He didn't leave us in that place. Instead, He stepped out from heaven. He actually stepped down into creation, stepped down into the world where you and I live in as Emmanuel, as God with us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived a sinless life. And then Jesus went to the cross. He took our place, the place that that brokenness that we all carry with us deserves. The Bible puts it this way, that God demonstrated his own love for us. And this, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Or as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. We just have to agree with what Jesus did. And we get to experience all of those blessings. But Paul doesn't just end it there. 2 Corinthians 1.20 goes on and says, Therefore, through him 
we also say amen to the glory of God. We say amen. And the word amen, it actually means so be it or I agree. That's the word that the entire Bible ends with in Revelation. In Revelation 22, it also happens to be the same word we use when we end prayers. And so as we look ahead to 2023, I want to challenge each of us to do something bold to start off our year. I want us to agree to those promises that God has given us. I'm going to invite each of us to stand. I want Jeff to come up, and he's going to lead us in a song of worship. And as we look forward to this next year, I want to challenge you with boldness and with conviction. Say with me the word amen. I'm going to count down from three, so let's all stand together. And then as I count down, I want to invite you to say with me, amen. Three, two, one. Amen. God, I thank you so much for your promises and your word that we can bank on as we look into this next year. I thank you, Lord, that you promise your presence to go with us so that we don't have to be alone. I thank you for your promise to provide for us, to give us enough that we need for today. I thank you that you promise to transform us and even to equip us to point other people to know you. I thank you that you promise us eternity because of what you did through Jesus. And I pray today that you would help us to know and experience those promises in a greater way in our lives. As we look to, to this next year, help us to build our lives around you and the promises from your word instead of anything else. God, we need you, so I pray for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.